Well, it's all around us. Uh, people see it and uh, experience it to varying degrees every day all around the world. And that is conflict. Uh, we see conflict among nations, uh, conflict in politics and among political parties, uh, conflict on social media, conflict within families. We feel conflict at times within our own lives and our own hearts. So we would wish and desire that the kingdom of God and the church of Christ would be a safe haven from conflict. But as John teaches us this morning, the Apostle John, as we continue in this letter, 1 John, we face a conflict even within our midst here. It's not the conflict among believers, though that is something that the Scriptures address in in numerous places. No, this is the conflict between Christians and what John coins as anti-Christs. And John will not only describe this spiritual conflict that we as Christians find ourselves in, but where our hope lies, what our defense is, where the remedy lies amidst this conflict. So I I encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, it's verses 18 to 29. Listen now to God's Word. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Uh, Perhaps you have uh, experienced this uh, yourself. You're about to uh, pay for merchandise or your groceries and you decide to do so with cash and you take out a $20 bill and and you give it to the cashier, they take it and they run a marker over the surface of that bill. Has anybody experienced that before? I always get kind of nervous about that. Why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Well, they're checking to see if it's genuine. You know, what's going to happen if it's, if if this is a counterfeit? Am I, am I going in in cuffs? 
They're checking to see if it's genuine. There's a reason no one makes uh, counterfeit $3 bills. A counterfeit implies the existence of the real thing. And where there is something genuine and of great worth, you can be confident not far from there are going to be counterfeits. And this is what the Apostle John is, among other things, helping us to discern. As he speaks of antichrists in verse 18, he speaks of the, the liar who denies Jesus as the Christ in verse 22. And then in verse 26, those who are seeking to deceive you and twist the truth. There's those who are opposed, anti-Christ. There's liars, there's deceivers. It's all pointing to the fact that we are in this spiritual conflict as Christians. So I want us to see, first of all, some of the shape or aspects of this conflict that John addresses. For one, the conflict we face is not merely out in the world, but within the church. Uh, In the previous verses, you may recall 15 to 17, John warned about a a love of the world. And and that world being described or defined as really under the control of Satan, whom Paul calls the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. This this system, this evil system under the rule of the evil one that manifests itself in various ways in the world. But now, John is speaking of this evil seeking to infiltrate the church of Christ. So he says in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. This is John's way of of describing or defining the last days, the, the time, the last stage of history inaugurated by the first coming of, of Christ. And what does he say about this last hour? As you've heard that Antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come. Thus we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If John says they went out from us, it means they were once appearing to be with us or in our midst. The church's conflict is not merely with the world's system out there, cultural political influences, but with the threat of false teaching in here. Not only that, but it's the internal conflict that takes priority by the New Testament authors throughout the Scriptures. That's where our priority ought to be. Yes, Peter, John, Paul, other New Testament authors address the significance of the world's influence and and the state and the culture's influence. They give priority to the church because the kingdom of God is primarily advanced through the people of God, through the church. And so the emphasis is really on keeping order in our own house, if you will. Preserving God's house, protecting God's house, purifying and ordering the household of faith. Think about our own individual homes or houses. We've we've had a few mice recently. Anybody have that issue ever? Yeah. I I, I highly doubt any of us set traps out in the grass outside, even on our decks. Okay, You'd be going through a lot of traps. Endless. No, we set traps inside. That's what takes priority. We want order and cleanliness inside. 
I wouldn't mind eliminating all the mice and rats in the world, quite frankly. I'm sure there would be a major ecosystem breakdown. They must fill some role. The church has survived. The church has flourished, not because it could first get society in order, but because by God's grace it has kept its own house in order by the Spirit of God and the grace of God. When Paul sent and established Timothy in Ephesus, Paul's opening words to Timothy in verse 3 of 1 Timothy, after the greeting, his opening words, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Satan's priority is the church, and he's skilled. He's deceptive. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he masquerades Satan as an angel of light. Hard for us to discern then his schemes. And, and that he comes really in the form of false apostles and deceitful workmen, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. This is precisely what John's speaking about when, when he says, as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. We, we notice John uses the plural, antichrists, not merely singular, antichrist. He, he's not referring to uh, the man of lawlessness that, that Paul speaks about in Thessalonians, who will appear in the last days, the very last days prior to Christ's uh, coming, who, who will exalt himself above all else. No, he's saying even now the very spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the evil one, is at work. And who is among this group of Antichrists? Verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Certainly in the immediate context, John would be addressing the, the Gnostics, those who, who denied the Messiah would, would even come in the flesh. But this spiritual battle and conflict we see centers on the person of the Lord Jesus. He who does not acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as Lord, is not merely in a position of indifference toward the things of God or of Christ. They're being ruled by the spirit of Antichrist. Anti, meaning either against or in place of. Maybe we could say both. The false teacher or the person outside of Christ is both opposed to him, but also serving as their, their own God in his place. And not only does the church face this internal spiritual conflict, but listen to these words from our confession in chapter 25 on the subject of the church. It says this, the purest of churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Yet there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to His will. Yes, God will have a people for Himself. Jesus promised it. I will build my church. Psalm 72 his name, the name of God, shall endure. All nations shall call Him blessed. 
But the confession's words remind us we're not immune to the impact of false teachers or error or being derailed from gospel witness and truth and effectiveness. Think about immunity with the pandemic. We've, we've probably all learned a lot more about immunity, or, or maybe not. I'm not sure. Well, when it comes to protecting and preserving and upholding the truth of God's Word and Gospel, the church does not have immunity. Uh, last week for Shelley and I's anniversary, we went to Northampton, Massachusetts. I had not uh, been there and uh, it's a wonderful town to walk around in. Very good coffee. A lot of tie-dye shirts. Uh, but, of course, also the historic town of Jonathan Edwards' 20-plus uh, year ministry in the 1720s, 30s, and, and 40s. A, a central site of the first great awakening. But standing in that town, looking at what was, I think, or is the, the fifth meeting house uh, where Edward served, uh, where he served in the second meeting house uh, historically. It's just hard to imagine what it, what it was like at that time to put yourself in that place, that time. The culture has changed so, so much. Yet, unfortunately, so has the foundation upon which that particular church stands. I went to their website out of curiosity. The opening line describing who they are as a congregation is, quote, we are an open and affirming congregation, which many of us, I, I, I know, understand that is formal language that rejects the biblical and traditional view of the family and sexuality. Culture changes, but the truth does not. The truth does not. God always has a people for himself, to hold forth the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's remarkable how much the church historically has been through by way of conflict. Amazing. Yes, God is good. He preserves a people. You think of the councils of Nicaea, the 4th century, Chalcedon, 5th century, defending a Trinitarian view of God. The, the dual nature of Christ, His full humanity, His full deity. We think of the Protestant Reformation, a movement seeking to uphold the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ as the foundation for the church, not the traditions of men. More recently, the modernist fundamentalist controversy of the 1920s and 30s, a schism over the authority of God's Word and the historical truth of the death and resurrection of Christ. How many controversies and conflicts the church has endured. And we may not feel we're involved in such monumental conflict, but, but culture continues to shift. Uh, the spirit of Antichrist continues to roam. He certainly roams in the false teaching of moralism. As if all that matters is sort of an external shell of, of, of niceness and religiosity. He roams in the false teachings of Christian liberalism. Where, where man becomes the measure of what is good and true and right, not the unchanging Word of God. Our faith and our, our truth commitment is as relevant today as any time. It's relevant for our own lives, for our families, our children, our grandchildren. To be a people who seek the truth, who love the truth, who stand on the truth. 
And amidst this spiritual conflict, in preserving and upholding the truth of the Word and of the Gospel of Christ, the Lord has not left us to ourselves. He's provided us a defense. And here in John, it's a, it's a twofold defense. Two companions, they go hand in hand here. The first is in verse 21 and verse 24. John writes, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. You know the truth and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father, and you will have eternal life. The first defense here that that I give attention to is, is the Word of God. Defense against false teaching or distortion of truth. Recall how John began the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the word of life, that which we've heard, we proclaim to you. That word that we have heard, direct from Christ Himself, we're proclaiming to you. This is the word of the Gospel and the word of God. When Paul in Ephesians 6 uh, described that spiritual conflict that the church and the Christian is in, and he started to metaphorically give the, the, the armor of a Roman soldier, and he began listing the, the defense that we have, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes fitted for gospel uh, readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. It's almost all defensive armor. I think the only offensive piece of armor there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That Word cuts through falsehood, the schemes of the evil one. John Piper said the fundamental reason that the Word of God is essential to our faith and joy in God is that God reveals Himself mainly by His Word. We want to know the revelation of God and God Himself. We will have an investment and commitment to His Word. It's not just for discerning truth and, uh, from falsehood or righteousness from wickedness, light from darkness. It is life to our soul. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm, I'm struck at times by the age in which we live. It is an information age. We have words, content, messages coming at us in potentially at, in great quantity. News, media, emails, texts, articles, books, it may be important, some of it, much of it, and good. But I think important and good becomes our enemy when it begins to crowd out space and time with our God as He reveals Himself in His Word. John says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Abides. John records the same word in John 15. Jesus' words there. If you abide in Me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. It's the abiding that uh, then fruit emerges. I'm not a tea drinker, but I know uh, some of you are. Imagine every time you got that hot water and you dipped the tea bag just for one second, maybe two, and then pulled it out. 
what kind of taste would you have? Almost no taste at all. Such is the person who's not soaking in the Word of God. It's not merely reading the Word or hearing the Word. The Gnostics heard the Word. The Pharisees heard the Word, but they rejected it. This is why Jesus says things like, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because there's a a kind of hearing that does not take root. You hear Paul's words in Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Think about these things. Practice these things. But then there's a a necessary companion to the Word. A second defense against uh, potential falsehood creeping in. And that is the Holy Spirit. A necessary companion to the Word. Verse 20, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Verse 27, The anointing that you received from Him abides in you, You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you and is true, as it is taught you, abide in Him. The anointing here is likely referring to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And I must say, a a preacher, teacher, ought to be very careful with a text that says you have no need for anyone to teach you. I may talk myself out of the need for part of my work. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4? God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or shepherd teachers, and teachers to equip the saints. So that is part of God's prescription. God prescribed that shepherds and teachers would teach the truth, explain the truth, apply the truth. So so we do need teachers. But teachers teach... Teachers explain, teachers may apply, but teachers do not determine the truth. It's not the church or any pastor that determines the truth. We recognize the truth for what it is. God is the one who determines what is true. So we would be wise, all of us, to follow the example of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. After Paul and Silas moved on from Thessalonica, they came to the town of Berea. They entered the synagogue, as was their custom. They began teaching. And then we're told, these men and women, quote, were more noble than the Thessalonians. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You know how impressionable uh, we can be. I know when I've attended Christian conferences and someone like an R.C. Sproul uh, would be speaking or D.A. Carson or John Piper or Sinclair Ferguson, I'm all ears. I know who uh, these people are, read some of their work. My mind and my heart are open. 
imagine if the Apostle Paul was the keynote uh, preacher. Yet these noble Bereans did not simply take his word for it. They were ready. They received it with eagerness. And then, as it were, they went home, they opened their Bibles, and they examined these things for themselves. They were noble and they were eager about the Word because God was at work in them. That's that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in them. When John says, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and the anointing you receive from Him abides in you, and His anointing teaches you what is true, He's telling us about a fundamental and necessary resource for living in the truth and gospel. That is the work and presence of the Holy Spirit. We are a Holy Spirit-filled people. Apart from the Spirit, the Word will not be impressed upon our hearts. It will not be alive to us. It will only be words, not life. And so Paul tells us, don't quench the Spirit. Spirit's working. Keep in step with the Spirit. Follow in the ways of, of the commands of the Lord. Jesus said the Spirit's like the wind. Blows where it will. We need nothing short of God Himself to animate and give life to our souls. And so we pray that the Spirit would blow mightily in and through us, restoring joy, turning the downcast heavenward, those wandering from the fold to return again, those complacent, jolted in in heart. And, And John ends, as he has often emphasized, with words of assurance. Assurance that as the Word of God, as the Spirit of God is working in us, that we will live in righteousness, growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray to Him. Oh Lord, how we thank You for Your precious Word and for the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us life, to fill us with life. And oh Lord, we pray that You would continue to protect and to preserve Your church, Your people, whom You have called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, might we, as a people corporately and individually, be committed all the more to Your Word. To meditate upon Your Word day and night. That we would have a hunger for it. That we would enjoy walking in the ways revealed in Your Word. Oh Lord, how Your Word brings us to our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life and we have the forgiveness of sins. Continue, O Lord, to be at work in and through Your people. Continue to meet with us uh, even in this time as we celebrate this supper together for all that we have in Jesus Christ. For this we pray in His name. Amen.